John chapter 7. We're finally in John 7, beginning at verse 1. And I will be reading verses 1 through 9. John chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of God. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. For he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacle was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. John chapter 7 is not like John chapter 6, and it is not like John chapter 5. John chapter 7 is, is very similar to chapters 3 and chapters 4. Chapters 5 and 6 focused upon a miracle and then the reaction of the Jewish leaders and the people, and then Jesus addresses the issue. He draws from those miracles points of discussion or his points for preaching. So in chapter 6, working backwards, he feeds the 5,000 and then he gives them the discourse on the bread of life. In John chapter 5, he heals a man who was born blind. What is the purpose? He wants to communicate that his father has been working until now and Jesus himself is working. He and the father are one. He focuses upon the unity between himself and the father, his will and the father's will, his work and the father's work. And now in John chapter 7, this entire discourse really, which is a discussion about Jesus' doctrine, his teaching. That's what this chapter is going to focus on. Look at verse 16. This is after Jesus goes, goes into uh, Jerusalem and he begins to preach. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not my own, but his who sent me. And Jesus' teaching then becomes the focus of this chapter. Verses 1 through 9 really set up the context for the chapter. And what we have in verses 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2, is just the setting. Various aspects of it too. But verses 3 
through 5, we have really a picture of unbelief. And that picture of unbelief is is it's very particular. It's a very particular kind of unbelief. This is not just, uh, you know, when we use the word that a person is an unbeliever, we can speak broadly. But here, a narrow aspect, a very narrow aspect of unbelief pops up. We'll see it in a second here. And verses 6 and following is really the answer of faith. How does someone who trusts in God answer this kind of unbelief? And we'll see it here. So let's look at the setting first. The setting. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. After what things? Well, after the miracles. It already had risen to the point where the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. We see this in John chapter 5. And turn back there to John chapter 5. Particularly verse 16 and then verse 18. In John chapter 5 verse 16. Because Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath... For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now verse 18. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father. So Jesus doesn't want to walk in Judea. After these things, after he performs all these signs, he leaves. Now, this, there's actually a six-month period between chapters, something like a six-month period between chapters 6 and 7. And Jesus' ministry uh, in Galilee is recorded in the Gospels. And what we see from the Gospels is that Jesus performed many signs and wonders. The, the, the language that's used here, that he walked in Galilee, it's a figure of speech and it just means that's where he lived. And he wasn't in hiding. It was just the hostility of the Jews wasn't as great, you know, uh, where the rednecks live. You know? It's kind of like if we were trying to do this, you know, today in the Bronx, we'd have a really hard time. We'd get closed down because of COVID violations. But up here, you know, where the rednecks are, we don't. <laughs> There's not too much of a problem. So Jesus heads into Galilee and he ministers there, and that's recorded for us in the Synoptic Gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke, particularly Mark. So Jesus is there because the Jews want to kill him. And that becomes a great issue now. Throughout this gospel, this really begins to ramp up now. Note next. Now, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. So not only is Jewish, uh, excuse me, not only is Jesus dwelling in Galilee... But Jesus is dwelling in Galilee because the Jews want to kill him, and now something's going to come up, a particular feast. The Jews wanted to kill Jesus more than anything else because uh, they envied him. They envied Jesus. They hated him. 
They hated the fact that the people were flocking around him. They hated the fact that there were conversations about Jesus. And now this feast is coming up. If you know anything at all or, or, uh, or are familiar with your Old Testament, you know that this is one of the three great feasts where all of the Jews are commanded to go up to Jerusalem. They're to gather together. So in Deuteronomy 16, 16, Moses writes, Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So this was a time of the year where all of the Jews had to go where God had appointed so that they might worship God according to the custom of the particular feast and offer those sacrifices that were necessary for that feast. And what John is doing is he's building a little bit of tension for the reader. What's Jesus going to do? Right? Because the Jews want to kill him, but he has come to do the Father's will which means that as a Jew, he must submit himself to all of the Jewish customs, and he, he's got to go up to Jerusalem to meet with the people. It's important to understand a few things about this feast because they are going to crop up uh, in the chapter. I'll just briefly sketch them, and then when they crop up as, we're preaching through, as, we're, as I'm preaching through the chapter, I'll address them again. This feast in particular is given to the people in Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 through 36. Moses writes, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days of the Lord. On the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. You know what a holy convocation, well, you know what that means? Holy convocation? A Christian party. It just means, like a, for Baptists, a potluck, right? <laughs> and they, they would do this, you know, amazing, right, for seven days. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. So this was a time where the Jewish people, they would all gather together. They would have feasts, celebrations. Why? Why? Well, in the same chapter, down at verse 42, we read this. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. Tabernacles, booths, same thing. They were basically tents, little tents that they would make. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. It was a reminder of their redemption from Egypt. So basically, they would have a huge camping trip for eight days. That's what they did. And in the city of Jerusalem, what they would do is, uh, let's say you had your house in Jerusalem, but, but it was a city. You know, there's not wide open spaces. They would even go on their roofs and set up tents and uh, basically camp out for a whole week to remember God's redemption. Redemption. 
to remember God's redemption. And there were many, there were a number of things that they did that was uh, really, uh, uh, really interesting. Of course, you had all of the, uh, all of the um, offerings that they would offer, but you also had the people drawing well from the pool of Siloam and bringing these buckets of water, huge buckets of water, and they would pour them over the altar as they sung uh, portions of the Psalms. And um, this water, of course, indicated the way that God had provided for the people's thirst in the wilderness. And Jesus says in John chapter 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So a little part of this uh, feast is, is important. Not only that, but the entire feast was taken up with rejoicing. The, the, what they were supposed to be doing the entire time was enjoying themselves. It was to be a time that was filled with joy, mirth, praise, happiness, and celebration because they were focusing in upon their deliverance. God has delivered us from oppression in Egypt and he has constituted us a people. Therefore, we must gather together and worship the Lord. Josephus says that if you wanted to know anything about the, the joy of being a Jewish person, this is the feast that you would attend. So that means they, they, they all came out for this. And it was a great celebration. That's the setting. First, Jesus is the tension between Jesus and the Jewish people. And now this great and grand feast where the people would all be outdoors. For eight days, they're out, all outside. Which means that confident, um, conflict was, was, was unescapable. Conflict with Jesus was unescapable. Is, uh, conflict with Jesus and the religious leaders was unescapable. There was prone to be conflict. So that's the setting. Now, let's look at his brother's unbelief. Verse 5, uh, John is very clear, right? This is a little editorial note. He tells us the reason his brother says this is because they didn't believe. For even his brothers did not believe in him. This is why they make this statement. And really, this is the voice. You know, I said picture, but really, this is the voice of unbelief. This is how unbelief, unbelief speaks. This is how it thinks. It sort of projects its own uh, demonic and ungodly thinking upon Christians. So let's see it. We could say it this way, you know, un un unbelievers are always hungry for glory. That's what they want. They want the praise of men and not the praise of God. So listen to them. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go to Judea. Right? Leave from here. It's kind of interesting that his brothers would do this. Commentators are all over the place. You know, they say that they're his cousins and all this other stuff. But that just is tied to the view that Mary was a perpetual virgin. These are his brothers. 
James, who wrote the book of James, Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, and Joseph, and all the others. So this is them speaking. And then what's, what, is, what is shocking about this is that they knew Jesus. He lived with them for 30 years. They knew exactly who he was. They knew his temperament, his attitude. He had never sinned against them. He had never sinned against his parents. All he had ever done was good. He obeyed the will of God perfectly. So you would think that they wouldn't be offering him advice. (laughs) They should have asked a question. They should have asked, uh, when are you going up? Why aren't you going up yet? Why haven't you left? No, but they, they choose to offer advice when it's really un, un, unneeded. Depart from here and go to Judea. And here's the reason why you should do this. That your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. That's why you should go up. You should go up so that those who are there, who say they are your followers, can see what you're doing here. You're doing all of these works and all of these miracles all outlined in the Synoptic Gospels. You're doing all of these things, healing people and and, uh, preaching the word with power, casting out demons, all of these things you're doing, and you're doing them in Kerhunksen, you know? (laughs) At least go down to Westchester, you know, where there's Kingston or something. You're cooped up here with, uh, you know, um, and nobody knows, right? Rednecks. And nobody knows, Jesus. Nobody knows. You should be seeking glory. This is very similar to the temptation that Satan offers Jesus. The third temptation, he says to Jesus, he takes him up on an on a exceedingly high mountain and shows him all of the kingdom of the earth. And he says, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Right? Right? I'll give you everything. Jesus, if you just left here and went up to the feast, you're, and went up to the feast, everybody, I mean, if you started raising people from the dead and feeding people bread and, uh, you know, everything that you're doing down here, you just have a mass crowd of people following you. This is the heart of the unconverted person. Their desire, of course, is for glory. They love glory. They desire it. You're not going to get it here in hiding. They think that other people will see the works and give glory to Jesus. And they're using this as a means of of tempting him. And this is a temptation for him. And here, uh, this is why it's a temptation. Look at verse 6. My time, verse 6, same chapter, and my time has not yet come. This is unbelief on the part of his brothers and faith on the part of Jesus because Jesus understands God's timing perfectly. There is persecution on one hand. 
great persecution. The Jews want to kill him. And on the other hand, there's this feast that he must go to because he came to fulfill all righteousness. And there's this sort of this tension now. Um, He has to go up. And his brothers are basically saying, go, hurry up and get there. But Jesus understands God's timing. He has foreknowledge. And they, ha- they don't have this. They don't, they don't know God's plans and purposes the way Jesus does. So they speak this way. They say to Jesus, you should be seeking glory and you should be seeking it this particular way. You know, if you're a Christian, this happens to you daily. You experience things like this on a regular basis. People who are the closest to us are used as instruments of Satan to tempt us. we, we, We don't like to talk that way, but that's exactly what's happening here with Jesus. His brothers, who are his really his closest kin, are being used by Satan to tempt Jesus to work contrary to the will of God, to seek glory in a way that God has not caused him to called him to seek glory. And now, of course, we we don't um, by seeking glory. What I mean to make it applicable to us is, uh, would it not be honoring to your father, Jesus, who you say is in heaven, if you went to the city and more people heard and saw what you're doing? Would it not honor God? And Jesus is not in the business of tempting God. What is the second temptation that the devil offers Jesus? He says, hey, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple and he's going to send his angels to catch you. And Jesus says, "Don't. Well, I'm not going to tempt God. I'm not going to put the Lord, my God, to the test. This is a, a false standard that unconverted people set up. And they believe that their conception of what it means to be faithful to God determines the way that Christians should live. That's what's happening here. You have these unconverted people, and they determine the way that we should live. No, that's, that's not what we do. There's, there's a very uh, practical application here for us, particularly at this moment in history. Um, so yesterday we had a big meal together, right? Um, and would our governor be happy with us if we had that big meal together? No. Okay. <clears throat> so sh- should we uh, let, um, um, uh, I said, I think it was last week or the week before I talked to you guys about the guy on Facebook who keeps sending me messages. Did I tell you guys? <laughs> um, you know, meet publicly, do this, do that, do the third. Uh, you know, I don't think our uh, governor, the government, doesn't have the right to tell us not to assemble to worship. 
But what do we do? do? Should we put a sign out on the road in neon colors that says that we're here meeting? Right? Should we go all over Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and down by the Stuarts and post pictures of us gathering together in groups of more than 10 without masks on and proper ventilation? <laughs> no, we wouldn't do that. Why? Because we're not going to tempt God. God doesn't call us to do that. God doesn't call us to be arrogant. God doesn't call us to seek uh, our own glory, vain glory at all. God doesn't call us to do that. God calls us to come together to worship Him. He calls us to do that. Now, if a person has an issue with this, you know, um, there, there are passages in the Bible that people will go to and say, you know, well, what does, you know, what does Romans say? Right? Romans, uh, submit, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Uh, Romans 13, verse 1. So the governing authorities have said that you have to do this, therefore you must do it, and um, doing anything else would be uh, sinful, just outright sinful. And what I would say is this, is you have to remember context. Contexts are very important, Right? So, Paul uh, is living at a particular point in history right, with a particular kind of government, with particular kinds of authorities that he's living under. And we as God's people, in his providence, right, we're not uh, celebrating the Feast of Tabernacle, and there aren't any Jews that want to kill us. Right? That's not our context. That's not the historical setting. But our historical setting places us in su at such a point in history and at such a place in history where our government is not a dictatorship. Our government is a constitutional republic. Well, what does that mean? Are we a people governed by a ruling class? No, we're a people who are governed by the by the people, but particularly there are two documents that are very important. The Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Okay, so uh, by gathering together, we are not uh, violating Romans 13 and we are not tempting God. By gathering together, uh, we're exercising our rights. Now, we can be vainglorious people and decide to broadcast this and be, you know, obnoxious, you know, put speakers outside so the folks on 209 can hear the sermons and do that kind of stuff. And God would not call us to do that, right? The same way that he doesn't call Jesus to go down to the uh, Feast of Booths when and how his brothers wanted him to go down. How would they go down? They would go down all of their family. Remember in the book of Luke, when Jesus' family is looking for him, his, Jesus is lost, right? Where's this little kid? Well, he's probably with some of his cousins or some of our family members. So they kind of lay back. This is the way that this feast was celebrated. They would go in a huge group, right? So it would be Jesus and his brothers and their cousins and their mothers, and it would be just a huge crowd of people coming into Judea, the old uh, word that's used to describe this region is Jewry, because it was a region where the Jews lived. So coming in a huge mob, 
And then Jesus, you know, they would put Jesus on their shoulders and be singing hosannas, and Jesus would be preaching the gospel. And, um, but Jesus is saying, no, that's not what my Father has ordained for me. That's not what my Father has ordained for me. My Father has called me to submit humbly to His will. Verse 4. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. You want people to know who you are, Jesus. You want people to get saved. You want people to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why don't you go out and tempt these Jews to kill you? If you do these things, show yourself to the world. You see the temptation here, right? The temptation is for open, uh, full acknowledgement of who you are so that men can flock around you. But that's not why God sent Christ into the world. Christ was sent into the world to suffer at a particular point and then to enter into his glory. So he says to his brother. So, so that's the picture, really, of unbelief. What does, what does unbelief do when it doesn't understand the purposes and the plans of God? What it tries to encourage and motivate is self-glory. And so besides my, my uh, point about government intrusion on our worship, what we have to remember also is this, what we can learn from this passage is this, is that our, the people who are closest to us, right? if you are here and you're not a Christian, being close to a person, being in the family of a person who is a religious, religious person, a Christian person, doesn't guarantee that you have a saving interest in Christ. It doesn't guarantee that. In Luke chapter 8, we hear these words. Then his mother, beginning at verse 19, then his mother and brother came, brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told him by some who said, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. It, It's a blessing to be married to a Christian. It's a blessing to grow up in a Christian home. It's a blessing to have family members who are Christian. It's a blessing to have friends who are Christians. But that relationship does not guarantee that you'll be converted or that you are converted. And that is the way that we ought to think about it, particularly in this context. Because you're close to the people of God, it does not mean that you are part of the people of God, no matter how great the influence might be. In Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 27, we read these words. And it happened as he he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. Right? What a closer, there's no closer relationship between uh, 
two people, really, besides marriage. And it's this intimate relationship between a child and her baby, right? You, you know, mother, sorry, thank you. It created in the womb and then fed at their breast. What does Jesus say? Verse 28. More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He gets right to the point with these people. He, he doesn't waste words. The issue ultimately is submission to, for us, the revealed will of God. Jesus knows the will of God in a way that we do not know the will of God. So he knew exactly when it was his time to go into Judea. His disciples and his brothers, they didn't know that exact time. But his brothers' motives were off. They wanted glory. Maybe glory for themselves if Christ would have gotten glory. Or maybe they were mocking him openly. It could just be that they were making fun of him. But that relationship did not guarantee that they were believers. J.C. Ryle writes, In our Lord Jesus Christ, there was no fault, either in temper, word, or deed. Yet even Christ's own brothers did not believe in him. And what should we learn from these portions of Scripture? Unbelievers' hearts are desperately hard. And that's the issue. That's the issue with family members who haven't come to Christ. It's not that you're not godly enough. Jesus was godlier than all of us. It's not that you don't know enough of the Bible. Jesus knew the Bible better than all of us. It's not that you don't know how to treat them. Jesus knew how to treat his siblings better than anybody else. Those are not the issues. It has to do with the hardness of their heart. They are stuck and trapped in unbelief. One, the next thing we should learn from this is that men and women who are truly godly, who really love the Lord, have unconverted relatives. It's, it's not an indication of your relationship with God if your spouse and your children and your siblings and so on and so forth don't believe in God. We cannot communicate the new birth to our children. We can't do it with our spouses. We can't do it with our siblings. And remember Jesus' words in Mark 6, 4. He says, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own living room. <laughs> Sometimes. So, but what causes, so, so you have this, this, um, um, attention there. What causes a Christian to differ though? What, what is the difference? So you have his family who was so close to him, his brothers here, for example, and they didn't believe in him. What causes the, the difference? Faith. Believing in Christ. Believing that Christ is the means by which we are made right with God. And that's what we must encourage and exhort in our family members is that they would believe in the Son and had life. 
And as we think about unconverted family members, you think about this, throughout the Bible, this is a pattern. Cain and Abel. Joseph and his brothers. Moses and the entire nation of Israel. David and his brothers. And all throughout the Bible, there's this hostility where those who ought to be counted as righteous by those who are closest to them are despised. And Jesus enters into this same kind of suffering. In Hebrews 2.18, the author of Hebrews says that he suffered himself being tempted. And in this way, he can help those who are being tempted. There is a great temptation and despair that comes upon those who have family members who are not Christian. You've got this burning zeal and desire for them to believe in the Lord, for them to turn from their sins. You know that when you pray to the Lord Jesus, he can sympathize with you because he experienced the same thing. Those same temptations and difficulties and heartaches Christ experienced uh, to such a point that they ridiculed him. Your family members may not ridicule you. They may not make fun of you openly. But his did. And Jesus understands. Jesus understands what that's like. Therefore, what we ought to do is pray for them and plead with God to open their eyes. So, you have this, this, uh, this picture of unbelief, right? Unbelief and unbelievers who are close to the truths of God, they concern themselves with the wrong things. Here, Jesus' brothers, what they were concerned with was glory. I mean, you may be here and be an unbeliever and you concern yourself with, with wrong things. You know, you think that you may derive some kind of benefit or blessing from just being around God's people. Well, that's not the case. Now look, look at Jesus' words. Here's his correction to them, beginning at verse 6. My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Here's the answer of faith. Again, Jesus knows the Father's will perfectly. He came into the world to fulfill it. We don't have that knowledge. But what we do have is the Word of God revealed to us. We have the Scriptures so that we can understand, understand God's will and God's own timing. But he says to them, but your time is always ready. His brothers, being unbelievers, they, they can go pursue glory. They can go pursue all of those things that will satisfy them and f- all of those things that they think will give them some good in this world. Why is that? Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. That's why. You see, they are of the world, so the world loves them. Uh, they, they could uh, go and, uh, you know, go into the Jewish schools and maybe become Pharisees and Sadducees and become teachers and scribes and have men sit around them and fawn at what they say and how they sing and what they do. Because the world loves them. But the world hates the Lord Jesus. It has no desire to be 
with the Lord Jesus. Why? Because I testify of it that its works are evil. And that's ultimately the issue. Ultimately the issue, the issue why the Christians are mocked and made fun of, it's not because you go to church. That's not it. It's not even because, uh, you know, you have a Jesus bumper sticker, you wear a cross, or any of those things. The reason why the world hates Christians is because our life is an offense to them. There may be particular aspects of your life that your unconverted uh, family members, friends, and neighbors may like. You know, Jesus' brothers probably really, really like that he always shared his toys and he never stole and broke theirs. They love that, right? But they didn't love why he wouldn't do those things and why he did what he did. That's what they can't stomach. He wasn't doing it for his own glory. He wasn't doing it so that during dinner time, when the families gathered around, he could say to his parents, Mom, I let such and such use my toys. Praise me. Right? I didn't punch him in the nose when I should have. Right? He didn't, he didn't do those things to receive glory from men, but he did it to receive glory from his father. And in doing that, when Christians live that way, when we do what we do, not so that men might praise us, but so that we might honor God, that is an offense to the world. It's hard for them to stomach that. Because what we're doing when we do that is we testify that their works are evil. That the things that they are doing and the reason why they are doing those things are contrary to God and contrary to his ways. And Calvin put it this way. He said, when Christ says that the world hates him on account of this, he means that the gospel cannot be faithfully preached without summoning the whole world as guilty to the judgment seat of God. That flesh and blood may thus be crushed and reduced to nothing according to that saying, when the Spirit shall come, he will judge the world in righteousness. What he's, the point he's trying to make is this, is that until a person understands that they are not right with God, they cannot be right with God. His brothers had to come to this place where they understood that their works were evil. You go up to this feast, he says at verse 8, I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. His time for what? The time of his death? The time of his glory? The time that he would be lifted up among the people? That time had not yet come. He was following God's timetable. He was submitting himself to the will of God as we ought to as his people. The wickedness of human nature was at odds with him. Hated him. Hated the reason he did things. Hated the way he did things. But what does Jesus do? Jesus rests upon this. That is not what God has called me to do. 
And when the world tempts us to live contrary to the will of God, that has to be our recourse. We have to understand that the reason why the world does this is because they do not understand the ways of God and they do not understand the will of God. We must never be surprised when the world hates us. A disciple is not above his master. There's no reason why we should marvel at these things. It's not particularly your doctrines. It's not particularly your faults. But it's the person you live for that they hate. Because they love darkness. Because we are being conformed into the image of Christ. There's a constant testimony against the world by the way that you live. There's a constant witness. There's constantly, there's something constantly saying to them, I am not right with God. I am not right with God. And therefore, they're convicted. Now, this is a hard way to live, right? Because what Jesus is saying to his brothers here, you know, in plain speech, you guys are thinking really sinful because you're really sinful. Jesus is just giving them very plain, very straightforward speech. This is not the way we tend to deal with our family members. We, you know, le pasamos la manita. That's how you say it in Spanish, right? We, you know, we're very tender and soft with them. And I'm not, I'm not saying, uh, he's, he's, he's not being uh, ungodly with them, Right? He's not being unnecessarily crude or disrespectful, right? What Jesus is doing, though, he's speaking the truth to them. He says, we don't think about these things the same way, even something that may seem insignificant, like entering the, this feast. We don't think about these things the same way because you're not a child of God. Right? And you could think to yourself, man, I couldn't say that to, one of, you know, to my relatives. That's crazy. But what effect did it have on Jesus' brothers? Well, look at Acts chapter 1, verse 14. This is after the ascension. Jesus, well, of course, he's uh, crucified, died, buried, raised from the dead, and he ascends into heaven. And what do we see in verse 14, the apostles are there. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplications with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. What effect did his life have on them? What, what effect did his straight talk with them? Not, not, not uh, well, you know, uh, not, not reasoning. When, when you're asked, hey, mom, dad, brother, sister, do you think I'm a Christian? Well, you know, sometimes we have difficulties and we struggle with faith. And Jesus was straight. No, you guys are evil. That's why you're thinking the way that you do. That's why you act the way that you do. What, did that kind of, what kind of effect did it have? Well, it was one of the means that God used to draw them to Christ. And we cannot be afraid to stand upon the truth of God's word, particularly when we're drawn into it. His brothers, his brothers drew Jesus into this conflict with them. 
And what did he do? As soon as they opened the door, he stuck his foot in. Right? He said, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> the reason why we're at odds here is because you don't believe. You're not a believer. You don't know the ways of God. And that is the kind of attitude that we should have, brothers and sisters. So when we are dealing with unbelief, the response that we should have should be to present God's word, to present God's word in its fullness and in all of its clarity. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time together. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of your word and that you would help us as a people to have the same confidence Christ had in your timing and in your word. In his name we pray, amen.